This is Dialogue with Drake and Naboo. My name is Emma Drake. And I am Sweta Naboo. This is the podcast where we talk about all things policy, politics, and pop culture. PEI is no stranger to the climate crisis. High winds, waves, tides, and changes in sea level are contributing to coastal erosion and coastal flooding. This means PEI is especially vulnerable to the climate crisis, but it also means PEI is in a strong position to lead the country in research and policy action. The UPEI Climate Lab conducts research and science on climate change vulnerability, impacts, and adaptation. Today, our special guest comes from the UPEI Climate Lab and has lots of insight between the impacts of climate change on potato production on PEI to the intersection of climate change and justice. This was articulated in her recent opinion piece in CBC PEI titled, When it comes to climate change, the heavy hand of colonizers is as important as our carbon footprint. Our special guest today is a PhD candidate at UPEI, head researcher at the UPI Climate Lab, author, potato expert, and recent recipient of the Emerging Thought Leaders in the category of climate change by Women in International Security Canada, Stephanie Arnold. Well, Stephanie, thank you again for joining us today. Uh, our first question for you is an important one. How are you? I'm feeling good. I'm coming down from uh, the hyperactivity of a children's birthday party. So I'm feeling <laughs> more to myself. Everything's calmer. It's quieter. It's good. Yes, uh, and many things uh, in your world, Stephanie, are quite busy, be it with children's birthday parties or, or your work on uh, one of the biggest issues of our time, climate change. Now, you've been involved with the UPEI Climate Lab as a climate change adaptation researcher and PhD candidate for a number of years now, and were recently named as an emerging thought leader by Women in International Security Canada. So our first question on that is, can you tell us a little bit about your work as well as the research you've been working on? Yeah, so the first part, which is what my award was for, is the idea of using climate adaptation pathways. So really what that's saying is trying to plan your action to adapt to climate change sort of in advance and really figuring out what types of steps do you need to do, when do you need to do them, how might you do them, and being able to be proactive about it there's just um, gives you more options to try to negate and limit the negative impacts of climate change. So that's one part of my project, and I'm focusing primarily on the agriculture sector and specifically for potatoes and PEI. Another part of my research has to do with uh, using remote sensing technology. And so data we collect in drones or satellites and how we can combine them with other farm data to also proactively um, deal with climate change, but more at the farm scale, the farm level. And I'm focusing on irrigation. How might we better meet crop needs while using less water? And so that's the second part of my research. And the third part is we're trying to build capacity to adapt to climate change. It's something that we need in all sectors. How do we know we have enough? How do we know we're doing a good job? What kind of measuring stick do we use? And so that's also a part of my research is how do we build adaptation capacity? And then how do we know that it's enough, it's the right type, and what other skills are complementing it, what kind of expertise we need? And so those are the three different areas I'm working on. That's super interesting. And, and one of the pieces that you mentioned uh, in your answer was around 
the role of climate adaptation is more reactive than proactive. Um, and in your research, what does proactive climate action really look like? Yeah, and I'll speak to it um, on the agriculture point of view, but it's sort of really simple. Sometimes it's hard to not be reactive, right? Because you can, even if you know something might be happening, it's like, well, is it going to happen? How much certainty do we have around it? When you have limited resources, whether it's time or money or expertise or people power, you want to be doing the right thing. Because if you guess wrong, then it feels like you've uh, wasted resources in one area when you really need it to another. And so sometimes the uncertainty really freezes us and then we end up doing it reactively. And so the problem sometimes is, are the impacts that are going to happen, are they actually going to happen? Well, when are they going to happen? Where are they going to happen? What's the severity of, the, of it? And how do I actually limit the negative impacts of it? And so how I'm trying to get people to see it is to build and make it proactive is let's use climate data. We have a lot of projected climate data. Why don't we use that to give us a sense of when some of these impacts might happen? It might not be entirely correct, but let's lay it out given the best data that we have right now. And so we outline a series of impacts that we think make our best guess using the climate data to figure out when they might be happening. And what sequence of events would you like to see happen in order to address and limit the negative impacts of those events? So events could be, let's say for agriculture would be, well, at some point you'll need to shift to um, a variety of potatoes that are more heat or drought tolerant. Well, when do we need that to take place? And so by planning in advance, you're able to do certain things now, or do you need to switch to a different crop? And if you do, and it's something, let's say we figured out, oh, you need to do that in 10 years time or 20 years time. Well, then how much time do we have to get new markets ready to identify new buyers, new supply chains, maybe retooling your equipment? And so being proactive is a lot of planning, but you always have to go back because things might change. Maybe the regulatory regime has changed. Maybe the market has changed, or maybe the climate change is actually accelerating quicker than we think, and we have to shift on the fly. And it seems like a lot of planning, but by doing that, you're able to limit more of your negative impacts. That's really, really exciting work. And as you were talking, I was just reflecting on how interdisciplinary it all is. You know, we started talking about climate change and agriculture and eventually started moving to markets and supply chain, looking at more that economic point of view. So it's really, really interesting work. And, you know, for PEI, especially given the reliance on agriculture, um, it's really important work to be doing now. Uh, in 2017, however, you had already presented uh, recommendations to uh, the government uh, as you were involved in the publication of the Climate Change Adaptation Report uh, that was published by UPI, along with Dr. Adam Fennick. Uh, this report, which was you know, developed with extensive research and collaboration, was meant to guide the development of the province's Climate Change Action Plan. Can you tell us a bit about the process you folks went through in developing this report? Yeah, so we wanted to engage local stakeholders um, because climate change is, even though it's obviously a global crisis, there's a lot of local impacts that has to translate when we want to do local action. But just to get the conversation started, what I did was um, just search literature in terms of the types of impacts that we are expecting from climate change, but at the local level. And so for each sector, so if, for example, for fisheries or for water, for forestry, all the sectors that we covered, look at um, what's available 
in the literature, in terms of the impacts we can expect to see in PEI and the solutions that are working well or are being designed by other jurisdictions. And then we brought that summary to the stakeholders where we had a roundtable discussion for each sector and have them review it and say, does this make sense to you? Can you foresee this happening in PEI? These are the solutions that some of the other jurisdictions are trying. Some of them are already trying it or are finding success. Do you think they'll be successful here? What would you change? What new solutions would you add? What would make it make sense in PEI? And then we collected everything, both from the literature and both from that feedback and came up with the report. And even though it does feed into the, the province's climate change action plan, um, going through the report, you'll see that not everything involves the government. We can't really just expect the provincial government to kind of help us deal with all climate change. So a lot of the times you'll see, maybe it can be led by the government. Sometimes they can be in a collaborative role or sometimes they just might, might be against community groups or industry working it themselves out. And so the report got into a little bit bigger than what it was intent um, where we started. Um, it really just did not focus on just what the government can do for us. It's like, how do we as an island, how will we adapt and who can play what part? And I think that was actually a really nice co-benefit or a new approach that came out um, as necessary and as like, it kind of makes sense when you look back to it. And how well do you find that these recommendations that were developed with a lot of uh, stakeholders in various areas of expertise, how have they been included in this action plan and have, how much have they been subsequently acted upon? Yeah, so there is a section um, for adaptation and the climate change action plan for the provincial government here. And they've basically taken the broad strokes because they didn't really do a sector by sector approach. So for approaches that worked across sector, um, you could see that it did make it into the plan. And some of the indiv individual recommendations, they've also been picked up by the opposition party. And so I've seen that the opposition party has challenged the government to undertake some of the more specific ones that are more sector specific. And what I would really like to see more of, and again, it's beyond the government. I think there could be more collaboration taking place. I think there is more collaboration taking place, but the more we do it, the more we're able to be, have a more comprehensive approach um, to figuring out a problem that's very rarely specific to one single sector or one single set of expertise or to one group. That's fascinating. And, and I think from all this, um, you folks have really had your kind of um, hands directly involved in that in that process, particularly with this project with the provincial government, and really seem to have a grasp on how do you work with folks in the community to reflect what are the needs moving forward with climate change and climate adaptation. What do you think are the key messages or strategies to keep in mind when trying to engage folks in climate action? Um, I think maybe today's world folks are are a bit more cognizant of the fact that you know the climate crisis is is impacting PEI because of our kind of island characteristic but i'm sure in your experience you've come across some people who may not feel that way or may not feel we need to perhaps work as quickly or as assertively um so yeah what are some key messages or strategies you've learned in your work I think relevance is the top one, and it's something that scientists aren't good at because that's more subjective, right? Like scientists are really good at objective data. And so when we're leaving it to the scientists to communicate climate action, it's very factual and you're not necessarily trying to tell a story. And so when you're engaging with the public and trying to make it relevant, 
try to make it so that they see themselves either as part of the problem or part of the solution or both. And that we're all tied and we're all connected. We all have a role to play. And they also have concerns. And sometimes climate change, they understand is a problem, but it might be number 25 on their list of things that they're worried about. And so what I see is, well, how can I communicate that your one to 24 are all interrelated and climate has a role to play in that too. And it becomes less of, I have to choose to work on this or that. It's not a false choice, everything is connected. And I also want to make sure in PEI, we've talked about coastal erosion so long and so often that people immediately think of that when we talk about climate change. But if you don't live in a coastal area then you don't work in a coastal area, then all of a sudden, oh, well, then it's not gonna affect me. And so we really need to broaden and sort of what I say is connect it with everything that is important to them. And so we have to make it more engaging, we have to make it more accessible and people need to see themselves reflected in the solutions that we're bringing forward. Mm -hmm. That way they're gonna continue to be engaged. And what really got me on this path um, was someone asked me after a presentation and it was a fairly technical presentation and I would never give that kind of type of presentation again. But they say, well, what's the one thing that we need to do? We have to do one thing for climate action. And I surprised myself by the answer. I said, I think we need to lift people out of poverty. And I said it, and I couldn't believe I said it. And it took me like a year of really mulling it over. It's like, what did I really mean by that? But it's really obvious because when people are trying to make rent, they're trying to like, you know, eat uh, food, have food on the table, keep the lights on you're not going to really have a meaningful conversation with them about climate change. But as I think we'll get to later on in our conversation, all of that is related. Mm -hmm. Wow, you need to lift people out of poverty, you know, for effective climate action. That's, that's not something I think either Emma or I were thinking of right now, but you know, it's a very good point where you have to meet your immediate needs before you can start to kind of start thinking about effective climate action. But, you know, this isn't the kind of, the only kind of outreach you've been doing. In fact, uh, in addition to your work on climate, you've been very prominent in anti-racism movements on PEI and you're a board member uh, with BIPOC Usher. How do you find that this anti-racism, anti-oppression perspective influences your climate work? It has completely changed how I do my climate work. <laughs> and that's why I said I don't give those technical presentations anymore because mm -hmm. how I used to do climate change is how climate change was communicated it was very technocratic it was trying to make the science of it more accessible but anti-racism work even as a person of color really makes you learn and unlearn continuously and as I am learning and unlearning that also has changed the way I see climate change as an issue and how we should begin to attack it. And what's also really accelerated that process was BIPOC Usher applied um, for funding from the PE government on the Climate Challenge Fund. And we put forward in a proposal that we should look at inequities. How can we address inequities that are caused by not just climate change themselves, but sometimes inadvertently by climate action? So when we're trying to adapt, when we're trying to limit greenhouse gases, sometimes we're actually exacerbating or creating new inequities. And so when you have that lens, all of a sudden, anything you thought about climate before seems so irrelevant. And so now we're trying to make climate more relevant and to make it part of social policy. And also at the same time, make social policy also consider climate change. That's so interesting to hear about the 
transition from your expertise, you know, with a like a technical kind of science background into, okay, how can we totally flip this on its head and approach it in a new way that is more conducive to justice, is more conducive to, um, you know, poverty, you know, social policy as a whole, um, supporting BIPOC folks. Like, I think that's such a powerful transformation. Like, it's just so neat to hear like that that was a as a process and has influenced your work um both like in the community with BIPOC Usher but then also as a PhD candidate as a researcher like that's so awesome and and we saw some of that reflected too uh you recently were published on November 6th uh with CBC PEI in an opinion piece titled when it comes to climate change the heavy hand of colonizers is as important as our carbon footprint so what are some of the shortcomings uh, to the current approach government has had so far with climate action? A lot of what I used to talk about sort of in the more technical things is, you know, carbon it's, um, and other greenhouse gases. And I did start talking about, you know, looking at it from a different perspective because we often focus on China and India. It's really easy to offload our problem. But then we have to really take a hard look at, well, are we not really just outsourcing our pollution? Because if the products that they're producing are being consumed by the wealthier countries, and yet someone somehow, someone decided that whoever produced the good is going to be responsible for the greenhouse gases, it's just an accounting trick. It's like, there's no point trying to push around the, um, the responsibility of these greenhouse gases unless we're all going to be in it together. And so when we talk about carbon accounting, I feel like it's just smoke and mirrors to me. And that's what I see as climate actions that we cannot just be doing accounting work. We really need um, true action. And yes, greenhouse gas reductions are important because that is what's driving the climate crisis. But as I mentioned in my article, are we just trying to decarbonize the status quo? And right now, the status quo, we are where we are because of oppression and exploitation of peoples and lands. So if we're just trying to run the same exploitation and oppression on renewable energy, is that a world I want to be a part of? And that's, what I, that's why I stopped doing all those technical presentations, because it felt like if we can find a technical solution and we make everything technical, we lose the social and human issues out of it. So... That's what I think um, not just governments are lacking is anyone who's doing climate action, unless we're really talking about the true causes and the true impacts, we're not really making, taking meaningful action. And I wanna point out um, the original title I had submitted for that is to decolonize is to decarbonize. And that was my original title. And I've had a lot of inspiration and I've learned a lot from other BIPOC and, um, authors and thought leaders and uh, researchers and academics. And I'm not the only one that has come up with it. It's just, I've kind of maybe made it further and trying to speak to a PI audience about it. We need really drastic change and the government, I'm not talking about PI government, but I think governments in general, thinking around the edges aren't gonna help. Talking about you know where we're gonna be in 2030 and 2050 is not gonna help. We really need to retool how we look at policy what kind of society will we want to be in? How far are we going to allow ourselves to go down this road? Um, knowing that it's the longer we wait, the harder it's going to be. It's all those really hard questions that we need to start asking each other and ourselves. 
and none of those questions come up when you talk about carbon accounting or how many wind farms we can put up or how many solar rebates we can offer. It's some powerful stuff. I think your point around like, you know, swapping out carbon and inserting, you know, electric or other forms, hydro, et cetera, you know, doesn't actually address kind of the root colonial problem there of stealing and abusing resources for the benefit of, of particularly, you know, uh, developed countries such as Canada. I think changing that mindset around, you know, the problem still exists there, even when you change kind of the quote-unquote carbon issue. I think that's important. I know at least for myself, that's that's going to be changing the way I look at things. And one of the things you mentioned in the CBC article was shifting towards a values-based approach. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what is a value-based approach and what are asking the right questions? Yeah, and I used an example about the um, the attacks on the Mi'kmaq fishers and fisheries that are have been recent and also ongoing. And when you and I looked at it and I thought, why? I was really surprised that people, settlers, weren't there to stand up for them. I mean, there were some, but this has gone on for so long. It's like, where are the settlers? Where are the settlers? Where are the settlers? And it's, you're realizing it's just, there are many of us that are happy with the status. We're not entirely happy with the status quo, but we're not prepared to disrupt it. And the status quo right now are valuing profits. Um, and economic development over treaty rights. And that has to change. And that's what I mean by values. It's like, as a society, what will it take for us to value treaty rights over our personal gain, over our personal uh, comfort, over convenience? Is this what we teach our kids, right? Like we talk the talk, but we definitely don't walk the walk. And that's what I mean by values. It's like, I think we really need to take a good hard look at ourselves and our personal choices. I'm not perfect and none of us are perfect. And we all have you know, a lot of room for improvement, but we really need to start to turn that around now. And with values, if we can agree on core values, I think for PEI, um, with such a close knit community and province that we are, I think it's not gonna be difficult to get a critical mass for us to really decide, you know what? These, well, how things are going now, we kind of just inherited a problem that we didn't realize got bigger under our watch, let's get together and agree on how do we move forward? What is the right way to fix the problem? What values can we agree on? And that's why I'm really optimistic and I'm a very pessimistic uh, person by nature. So I am annoyingly optimistic that we can be the place where we can make our own lives better. And by doing that, climate action will take place because we will start caring about each other. We will start caring about treaty rights. We will start caring about the earth but we will do that by taking care of each other and of the environment. And I think we can do it. Wow, that's such a positive, positive note to have. And, you know, I was reflecting on some of the things you said, and it really does seem like so far we've been trying to do the same things we've always done in the same manner we've always done, just with a lower carbon footprint. And, you know, you're right, we need to really reevaluate everything we do and choose different methods and change our lifestyles themselves. And also lift each other up because always, you know, we're measured by the people who are most vulnerable, not by the people who are the best off. Uh, and, you know, while we are paying attention to climate change increasingly so now, and, you know, it's only in the last few years that the conversation has really shifted to include um, Indigenous knowledge um, into climate action, 
there have been over the last several decades recommendations brought up by indigenous peoples to curb the impacts of climate change, notably by valuing indigenous expertise and best practices. Um, so what are some ways in which decision makers can effectively engage with indigenous leaders and incorporate their knowledge? And obviously I'm answering this as a settler and I'm also mm -hmm. reflecting on this question as a person of color. I think it's really difficult um, to meaningfully engage with the group that you have harmed as part of the dominant society. And I think it would be unfair to reach out the, to them for help to a, to a problem that you have more control over and that they are actually suffering more from. So I think before you reach out and engage, I think it would be prudent and appropriate and respectful to do with all of the learning and unlearning on your own first. And with anti-racism work, as I'm reflecting on it, you know, sometimes with a person of color, sometimes you don't necessarily feel safe in a white space. And so I'm imagining that the same type of dynamic might happen where indigenous peoples might not feel safe in a settler space. And so before you engage, how do you create a safe space for them? How do you make sure that you don't come with their colonial views? How do you make sure that you don't, that you come with the understanding that you are part of the problem, that they have been victimized by this problem that you're trying to engage them to solve? And I think if we're able to do a lot of that legwork on your own before your approach, I think that would make for a more meaningful engagement. Um, I think that will shift the dynamic um, of a power imbalance that we've created or that we've perpetuated. So I think that's number one, it's just to really come with the right uh, headspace. And there's also a lot of learning that has been shared already. So I think we also need to reflect on those as well to um, really respect and see their perspective from the, the works and the knowledge that has already been shared. And that way you're also going and not really going to back to them for the same thing over and over again. It's not an easy thing to do. And um, I think I think really truly coming from a respectful place is important. Yeah. That's wonderful. Thank you and an and extremely thoughtful answer. Um, and I know many listeners right now are probably thinking, wow, this person's extremely cool. How can I continue to support her and her great work? So uh, Stephanie, our last kind of official question for you is, how can listeners continue to follow along and support the great work that you're doing? I don't have a cool website or a cool social media account, um, but I do do a lot of work through the UPI Climate Research Lab and also through BIPOC Usher. Those are probably the two organizations do a lot of work with. I'm also doing some work with the anti-racism table that's been recently established on PEI. So I suspect my name might pop up here and there um, through all the work that we do. But hopefully we can just engage um, with conversations more, um, whether you reach out to me through those organizations or better yet, reach out to and have these discussions with your friends, your neighbors, your family. And it doesn't have to be contentious, but let's just start talking and let's start being comfortable with being uncomfortable and let's start being better treaty people. Wow, and that's another high note from you. I find that, you know, this is a very heavy topic to talk about, you know, the, the planet's on fire, there's increasing social injustice everywhere, and yet somehow this is a very positive interview. So thank you so much for that, Stephanie. I don't know how you did that, but, you know, I think we're both feeling more optimistic right now, which is awesome. 
we do have um, another more informal segment after our formal interview that our listeners will know as our beer panel. Now it's called a beer panel, but really it's taken on a life of its own over the last year where people have been recommending um, everything from their favorite uh, pie to their favorite restaurant to their favorite uh, recipe, non-alcoholic beverage, you name it. Now, as our special guest today, Stephanie, what would you like to recommend to our listeners? I want to talk about banh mi sandwiches. So Vietnamese banh mi sandwiches are probably among my favorite sandwiches. And I want to talk about it because I took my daughter out um, to have one and she was excited. And we were going and we were listening to the radio on the drive into Charlottetown. And she thought she heard the lyric, I want to dance to your banh mi. She's like, did he just say, I want to dance to your banh mi? It's like, no, he said, I want to dance to your body. But I love how she was so obsessed with having the sandwich that it infiltrated her thoughts and the music and everything. And so I've lamented the lack of bami sandwiches on PEI for a long time. But now there's a few places that sell them. And I'm, it's my mission to try them all. So it would be great if people went out to try them too and support the, the growing Vietnamese sort of restaurant scene. It's great. And coffee shops too. They have them in the coffee shop as well. Yeah, banh mi son sandwiches are really great. And I find that there's a few locations where they're popping up in Charlottetown. Um, I know there's a number of restaurants on Skip the Dishes um, as well. I'm not sure if Alambe has them. I feel like they did. You, yeah. And, and um, the, shed, the Shed has them. And some of the other Vietnamese restaurants themselves might have them. And I think they have them in Summerside too. That's awesome. That's awesome. So I've had them before. Have you, Em? I've never had one, but oh. now I'm very excited. I'll be home in about four weeks or so. So, okay, that's now on the top of my list. Can you tell us, like, what's included in this sandwich? What type of bread? What type of, what are some of the tastes we can expect with this? I'm very curious now. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not Vietnamese, but I know that they've also been colonized. And so their bread, it's like a, it's kind of similar more to a French baguette. It's got a crispy roll. And inside, it's more of the traditional fillings. You'll have different, usually pork is um, popular, but so is chicken. Mm -hmm. But you'll always find like pickled vegetables, like carrots. Uh, they have uh, cilantro. And you can make them different uh, spice levels. And it's just crunchy and chewy and like salty and tart and spicy. It's just awesomeness. And on the drive home, I should say, Ed Sharon, Shape of Your Body came on. And <laughs> my daughter and I, dance i mean sang to it but we replaced the shape of your bond me for like the whole song <laughs> on the drive home so now you cannot ever hear that song again and nothing is bond me <laughs> oh ed sheeran shape of your bond me the, the new uh, chart topper and what's your recommendation today emma well um i'm going to recommend um a, a gin. Um, I know I'm, I've been known to recommend that, but I was recently visiting um, the town of Kingston, Ontario, and uh, they had a, a beverage with this particular gin, and it's called Empress 1908. Um, it's made in Victoria, British Columbia, and it's got like a purpley-blue kind of color to it. Um, I'm not sure what is so special about it, but it's a, it's a really good uh, gin. It's a little bit more kind of, I would say, floral, a little bit more smooth than kind of a more traditional kind of pioneer gin, but I definitely recommend it with um, 
maybe some blueberries and tonic and stuff like that. So that's my recommendation today. I wish I had a more unique one than that, but uh, after a long week, my brain, that's the, the main thing that I'm going to think of right now. <laughs> that's awesome. So Empress 1908 Gin from BC. Uh, is it available at liquor stores on PEI? Do we know? I'm looking this up right now. I think if it's anywhere, it's definitely at Notables. And I'm seeing now you could do a product selection. We're doing this live. We'll uh, look it up here. You go ahead with your recommendation and I'll see if I can follow up with some information here. Okay. Um, this weekend was my first time at Evermore Brewing in Summerside, uh, which is a local brewing company. Um, and they're really great. I really like the atmosphere there. I feel like they've been mentioned on the podcast before, uh, but I can't remember by who. So whoever it is, thank you for the recommendation. Um, it looks like an old train station inside. The furniture is really cute. Um, I had the spiced apple cider mule, which is really great. You know, it's, it's Christmas season. Mariah Carey is already around, so it kind of felt like the right time for it. But I think what I really loved about it was the food. It was just some of the most delicious food I have had in Summerside or like in PEI in general. Um, the garlic fingers especially are incredible. They come with balsamic on them, which I've never seen before. Um, and they're really cheesy and really good. So Evermore Brewing. And they also have really cute merch if you like that. Just to follow up on our previous research question here, unfortunately, Notables does not carry it. So I'll be sure to come back to listeners with a more local base recommendation next time. I'm so sorry. Or if you could bring a bottle for the folks here when you're here in four weeks time. Oh, yeah. It would also be appreciated. I guess I could do that. I guess I could do that. <laughs> Am I allowed to make a local recommendation to maybe replace Please. Emma's? Yes, replace so at, mine. Yeah, at, um, or some, maybe just to augment it, at Notables, because you mentioned Notables, they have a coffee liqueur that is really good. And it's made from Italian coffee. And you just serve it, it get, like, just even on rocks is delicious. And it's like just really tasty coffee. And I don't, I'm not a big drinker and I don't really taste alcohol in it. I would just like love it for the coffee taste. It's worth trying. Okay, coffee liqueur from Notables. I'm excited for that one too now. Well, this has been a lot of great recommendations around the table, I think. And this brings us to the end of our episode. Thank you again for joining us, Stephanie. We had a lot of fun and I think we learned a lot from you today. Um, and we'll definitely have to try your recommendations as well. I appreciate the invitation. I had a fun too. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your weekend. That's all the time we have for today, folks. Thanks again to Stephanie for taking the time to chat with us about the climate crisis, intersections with justice, and more. We're very lucky to have you on PEI, and we'll be keeping up with the great work you're doing. Dialogue listeners know him well, but for those who don't, Shane Pendergast is the artist behind our opening and closing music. That's his hit song, Gaspé Z. He's got a number of shows coming up, as he always does. First being at the Gahan House Halifax, Wednesday, November 17th, 2021, 7 to 9 p.m., and that's with Lawrence Maxwell. Then again at the Gahan House Moncton, Thursday, November 18th, 2021, 8 to 10 p.m., and that's again with Lawrence Maxwell. Shane will also be at Long Bay Brewery on Friday, November 19th from 8 to 10 p.m. Finally, he'll be at New Maritime Beer Company with Lawrence Maxwell, 
on Saturday, November 20th from 8 to 11 p.m. It's getting cold out there, so stay warm, stay safe. This has been Dialogue.